Although, I've seen some scripts I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done the DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome to another episode of the In the Mouth of Dorkness Chatcast. I am your host, Billy Das, the Indie Dork. Joining me today is not any of the regular dorks. It's my wife, no, Danielle. No, I'm an extraordinary dork. <laughs> I'll take it. The extraordinary dork is with us. Um, so uh, Brad and Lisa uh, and Brian have ventured down to Austin, Texas for Fantastic Fest. Uh, I'm not sure what order we're going to play our competing interviews in, um, but I hope that you're listening to their coverage of that festival as well. Meanwhile, uh, I am here at Lost Weekend 12 in Winchester, Virginia. We're recording up in the projection booth, and we had a chance today to talk with, um, I guess I would call them the creators of a movie called Mouthpiece. And the interesting thing about this uh, for me is that, you know, it starts its life as a very abstract performance art play that they created. Amy Nasbakken and Nora Sadova are our guests and the creators of that play. And then they team up with um, Patricia Rosema, uh, who is a filmmaker, to translate this like very artistic thing into a movie uh, that is available now. So go out and check this movie out. Um, I found it to be a very fascinating, engaging conversation. What did you think, Danielle? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. They are, are very interesting people. Um, you know, as a sort of former theater nerd, I recognize and appreciate that passion for performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really interesting to to hear them talk about their experience making a movie because they didn't have any more experience doing it than I would now if I was to mm-hmm. make a movie. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought the conversation uh, is really snappy, and I also like the fact that we go some very philosophical places with it. So I think without any further ado, uh, let's throw it over to the conversation. Okay, that's great. All right, here we go then. All right, welcome back. We're here in the projection booth with Amy Nosbakken and Nora Sadova, who are... The creators, I guess, would be the best way to describe all the things that you did uh, for the film Mouthpiece. Welcome along. Nice to be here. having us. All right. uh, Let's see. I guess the first thing that I want to jump into is the thing that stands out to this is like this starts out as like a performance art play. So what's what's the genesis of the performance piece? How does that start? Had an idea for a play, had an idea for a show about female relationships met Nora, got in a room, started working. Three years later, we had had a feminist awakening, realized we were just as big, these huge hypocrites and just as much under the boot of the patriarchy as our mother's generation, realized we had to make a play about that. So then we premiered it in 2015, pre-hashtag Me Too, mm-hmm. and it struck a chord with audiences and one of those audiences in a remount a couple years later was uh, Patricia Rosema who is the director of Mouthpiece the film and she came and saw it and she we had coffee with her randomly just 
we didn't know who she was. And she said, I want to throw my hat in the ring to make a film. So we had never had any aspirations hmm. to do any film work ever. So we said, death, let's do this. I'm, but I'm, I'm surprised at your willingness to jump in the thing. Like in, in my head, I feel like uh, when you've created something so personal, if somebody comes along and is like, right. hey, look at this really personal piece of art. Right. Can I just uh, jump right in here and turn it into a totally different thing? Like Patricia what? was very clear from the be- very beginning that she had no desire to take it away from us or make something we didn't believe in. She felt the voice in it was very strong. The concept was very strong. And she was insistent that we were collaborative on everything. And I think we sensed that and, knew- and learned to trust her. We went up the first, second time we met her, we went up to her cottage, the three of us, for three days just to bash out some ideas. And it was very clear very, very quickly that we all had the same goal. We had the same sense of humor. And there was no danger of her trampling on anything. It was all, it was like 33, 33, 33. It was very equal in, in the voice um, that was listened to in the room. Mm-hmm. And because we had no designs to make film, we didn't need to make this. So we weren't going to do it with any. I remember we had to we had to sign a shopping, I forget what it's called, something about shopping agreement with her lawyer. And we're like, <laughs> what is this? And she's like, well, it just means that while we're shopping it around to get money, you can't make this movie with anybody else. And we were like, there's nobody else <laughs> we would make this with because... We don't need to make it. So we're only going to make it with someone we trust is going to make it as a collaboration, the three of us together, who gets it. We don't need to make a big blockbuster. We don't need it. You know, we just, we want to make an authentic, beautiful piece of art um, that we know we'll believe in at the end and we know won't be taken away from us. So the whole ride was just like a joy of trust and love, really, from start to finish which I know is exceptional. I've been told that's not yeah, the norm. Yeah, it's very unusual. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm just yeah, I'm 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 shocked by that. So take us to um take us to the writing process. I mean because, you know, the the movie is is different it, it, it's it's di- it's different from the play itself. Yeah. Um and she's also credited as a writer, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So what what did that look like as you were putting pen to paper? Well, we we wrote at Patricia's Cottage and we took the play script that we had and we kind of broke it down into sections and looked at what we knew we would keep. There were certain things, certain texts that we thought would translate really well. Um, What we knew wouldn't work because it was too theatrical. Um, And then we talked a lot, told a lot of personal stories. Patricia is a mother and has lost her mother and... Amy and I have don't have that experience, so we expanded the story to include the role of the mother a lot because we couldn't write that, and that wasn't in the play. Hmm. Um, so we've added scenes. We we also once we were at a, a a script that we were happy with. By the time it was edited, there was a lot of stuff that we thought would work from the play <laughs> that got <laughs> cut in the end because it. Even if we like made it smaller and changed it for film, a lot of the stuff that had the most resonance was just visual. It was mm-hmm. just like, no, there is no text. It's, it's such a visual medium. And when we saw it, for us, it was so fun because there was all these new tools and tricks. And like, we never, we've never got to play in that sandbox before. So those things of, of how a lens moves and 
what you're seeing through to see the director of photography was a really um, amazing collaborator as well. And the way she shot it became a part of the language of what we were trying to say. So I think that the writing, the adaptation writing process didn't end until it was up on a screen in front of thousands of people. <laughs> so what is um, like, so like, right. Like you're translating this um, like, like, something that's so encapsulated visually in what you're doing and, and you're writing it down on paper at like, at what point does the cinematographer come in and ha- like, and what is, what, what then does like pre-production look like as you get ready to shoot something that is so obviously coordinatedly visual? Catherine, Catherine Lutz is the DP. She came in quite early, mainly in discussions with Patricia, but they as a team were extremely creative and, that duo is always looking for alternative ways to see things. They Patricia just never likes a clean shot. She always <laughs> wants something in the way. We'd be Nora and I would be naked in the bathtub waiting for a lens or something, and Catherine would have the camera on and take her lip gloss out of her pocket and like jump smear it on the lens, <laughs> and you can see it in the film. I mean. Yeah. The dip, all this, all this play with mirrors and like, how can we represent duality and conflict and cognitive dissonance visually? What are the? Let's think of a hundred ways. So, Catherine would come in with like a towel full of like broken shit, glass, like, like glass, and like I, like the handle of a mug, and just tr- see what it did putting it in front of the lens, and and trying to find. We we spent Nora and I spent hours trying to figure out because like mirrors are tricky in film and so we were trying to we were trying to find the right mirror to be the bathroom mirror is it beveled is it three parts what is it and trying to do synchronicity trying to find you know like tricks Mm -hmm. camera tricks to be like it's me and then it's her and then like (laughs) my back is here but the reflection is so spending all this time trying to find visual ways of representing what we would in the play tell you. Right. Synchronized, with synchronized voices, we would just say something. So it was a really cool way of translating, translating into this medium, which is just for us entirely new. And are they, so are they bringing their creative energies as you're exploring that? Or did you, did you find that, that your experience presenting this one way on stage, like leaned very nicely into kind of their experience of like, like you say, trying to find and and do these effects visually in camera? It was all a mix. I think we, like the four of us spent a lot of time together. Catherine really felt and understood what we were trying to say, but would just be in the room with us while we were talking a lot. So she was thinking about her palette as a part of the story and not just what shots am I going to do, but also because the history of cinema is 99% through the lens of a man, through the male gaze, writer, director, DP, there's been one nominated woman for a cinematographer for the Oscars ever. This is just like for us telling this specific story about what it's like to be objectified and under the male gaze and to be inside the head of a woman, it was very, very important that the gaze was as female as possible. And for her brain to be on the subject through that lens gave it a whole dimension that we were just like, couldn't have dreamed of. I'm curious. You said that, um, 
the director is a mother and that I, I think I gathered that neither of you are. Um, when she brought that, um, that perspective in and it sort of informed the, um, the script, you're playing essentially the same character, but in a different format. Did you feel like it changed your performance at all? Having, um, maybe more insight into, um, not just your own character, but maybe what had motivated the mother? I think, I think slightly, I think because there was a person to play off of and to think about, like it wasn't, it was, and Mev Beattie does such a beautiful job as the mother in the film and it made it, it filled in the blanks, Mm -hmm. which made the performance slightly more specific um, and nuanced. Uh, I I don't think I could give you a concrete example, but it was a feeling (laughs) Mm -hmm. that like in the play we we play all of the other characters, mm-hmm. but they're just, they're, they're like archetypes. Mm-hmm. They're through the lens of this character who's hearing their voices on the answering machine. So they're cartoon characters. They're one dimensional. Um, so we knew who Aunt Jane was, but she was this, nah, 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 nah. and then she was a real person and she was full of tenderness and care and had, had like all the dimensions. <laughs> so the, relationship of Cassandra to her aunt became a lot more complex mm-hmm. and real and thought out because there's another person there. As well, all the scenes, because it's the play is just it's one woman, it's just one woman. Mm-hmm. You meet other characters, but as Nora says, reflected through her lens. Um, when we were writing the screenplay, we, it's a hundred percent like those memories are ripped a hundred percent from our lives, like verbatim. My siblings saw this movie and they were like, "Oh, oh no. <laughs> like, they were like accurate." Um, not all of it's the three of us, so it's a sure. it's a right. mashup yeah. of of my childhood memories, Nora's childhood memories, and Patricia's. All of them are true. Funnily and, enough, though, just to interject slightly. There's some memories in there that aren't mine that my mom was like, oh, I see you put that in. <laughs> like, that wasn't even me. Yeah. So they, they cross boundaries. They're universal <laughs> experiences. Yeah. I mean, re- I mean, maybe not like universal, but yeah. certainly based on something everybody can relate. That, that mm-hmm. The complex relationship between a parent and their, and their offspring and the specificity of a mother and a daughter. Um, we... So we we kept it very, very, very specific, very authentic to us in the hopes that it would be universal in terms of that, that, that feeling. But, I mean, that was really... We didn't get to do that in the play. We didn't get to, as Nora said, react off anybody. Mm-hmm. There's no reacting. Yeah. It's a joy to do as well. And a mass, you know, like a wonderful actors, Paula Boudreaux plays the aunt and Mevfied who plays the mom, reacting off of those two veterans of... of the stage mostly um it was just it's, you know it's like riffing with a really good musician it's just mm-hmm. like oh yeah this is so real so as you're as you're making this movie i mean it premiered last year at tiff mm-hmm. right and it's going the festival circuit now it's pretty much it's still it's, it's around, still but it's, it's still yeah, oh, yeah. rolling there's a bunch of dates in october all over the place okay um it's on itunes now and it's on like Air Canada flights. Okay. So we're suddenly getting a surge of people because now it's accessible. Like before you had to go to indie film fests. Right. 
And that's that's kind of that's kind of my question is like when you're making this film, who who do you want to see this movie, and what do you want them to take from it? It's funny when we do the play. Usually, what happens? We do a run of the play, and it's just marketed as a play. And so the first couple nights is a very mixed audience, gender wise. And then by the last show of the run, it's a hundred percent women, mm. because not because men don't like it, but because women call their f- girlfriend or their mom or their daughter and are like, you're coming to this, we're going again. I'm bringing everyone, I, all my girlfriends. Sometimes they bring their boyfriends. Sometimes they bring their boyfriends. But with the film, like the intention, I th- it's for everyone. I think that the subject of feminism and the women's movement and what it's like right now to f- be in a female identifying body is uh, something all people need to be talking and looking at and it's not you know siloed into this is was made for women by women it's like it's just for people and a lot of non-female people have responded and said you know that duality the cognitive dissonance in the in the brain of this character is i can just i just made me feel so much and i can relate to it so much so and the grief and the grief as well yeah and this is so important, too, because there's um, such a misconception, I feel like, that movies that are made by men are for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And movies that are made by women are for women. Yeah. And um, so I, I think that's a, that's great that, that you're seeing the predominantly female audiences because obviously it's connecting with people mm-hmm. and they're like, this is the thing I needed that I didn't know I need. Yeah. Um, uh, but also uh, fantastic that it can appeal, you know, on... A slightly different level to men um, uh, as almost like a proof of concept that, mm-hmm. you know, these you know, movies are for everyone. I've been listening, I was listening to a podcast with um, Emma Thompson, the, the Guilty Feminist. She was on The Guilty Feminist. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about Late Night, the movie that Mindy Kaling mm-hmm. wrote for her. And I've also noticed it with Booksmart um, that women in the industry, especially bigger names in Hollywood, are trying to influence opening weekends of female-driven movies to prove to the industry that women can make money. But it's this very specific, like, we all have to go and Mm -hmm. we all have to spend our money on female-made movies because if we, as women, make one movie that doesn't make a lot of money, the guys in the offices are going to go, see, doesn't work. Let's do another Marvel movie. So there is that kind of expectation of like you gotta you gotta succeed or it's or we won't get any more of these made. Mm-hmm. It's um you know before we were on air when we were downstairs we were talking about um I was sharing a, a Frankenstein with my daughter and we were talking about normal and abnormal and like that to me is like an encapsulation of the danger of like what's perceived as normal and then what's perceived of outside of normal is because a dude making a movie that sucks is. Every fucking weekend at the box office, <laughs> totally. like it's, oh it's out there. God. It makes fifteen million dollars. Looking at a wall, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's walls of posters around here. Yeah, and there's walls of posters of movies that are not great movies that yeah. sucked, and it mm-hmm. didn't prevent like men from making movies because that's normal, right? Yeah. And then the abnormal is like women leading the film production, and yeah. then one failure because mm-hmm. it's the abnormal thing, it's easier to go. Oh well, yeah. you see that proves mm-hmm. everything. It's 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 a battle. It's the dangers of identity when you're talking about anything. Yeah. You know, if you are 
the only one or, or a small group of people in any industry, you represent everyone, mm-hmm. whereas white men get to just be themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Gosh, Billy. I, look, it's pretty all right being, being a white dude. Like, everything works out <laughs> our way. Like, I'm not, like, yeah, that's, yeah. It's, it's fucked up. Are you optimistic about uh, the way that things are going? Are you, are you pessimists? Not pessimist. I mean, you look at the, you look, it's, it's Friday, September 20th. And what are all the kids doing right now? They're not in school. They're out there protesting because the adults in the room are sitting on their butts. Mm-hmm. And this is fucking inspiring. And as well that the younger generation are not as caught up in these binaries. Mm-hmm. And they're like, dude, stop putting us in these one or the other categories. They're teaching us. Hundo percent. Um, so that's really inspiring. However, I would say like the adults in the room, everybody, we cannot get complacent mm-hmm. in terms of like, oof, I was just talking to her about Dave Chappelle special and what a misogynistic thing it is and how I had to turn it off because it's like, we're just normalizing women. He calls women bitches. That's it. There's no room word for woman. And he's definitely not the only one. And then, you know, there's a range. But I mean... It's just the pendulum is just, again, swimming, swinging back. The mm. same year, hashtag feminism in 2014 was popularized. The same year, you know, at the end of every year. Who is it who does that? Time. Time. Has a list of, like, the words that the English dictionary could do without. Feminism was at the top the, Are you serious? of the list. The pe- we cannot get complacent. Nothing's changed. Like, I wouldn't say nothing, but... Not as much as we think. In the same way that when we made the play Mouthpiece, of course so much has changed from our mother's generation. Our mother's generation and the generation before that sacrificed massively. We were, we were property, and then we weren't. We owe such a service to the women of our mother's and our grandmother's generation. But we can't, we can't just go, like, we're good. Just like now, man, like a few public figureheads have had repercussions from the shit that they've done. Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby. But man, man, the ream of the rest of... I hope all you at home are still shaking in your boots, perpetrators, who are guilty because we're still not believing survivors. Dave Chappelle. Or they get appointed to the Supreme Court. Yeah. I mean, look at the president. They're they're the people making policies. They're taking away the rights of women and minorities. They're kicking everyone out of the country. It's Mm -hmm. like... We thought for a while, because our producers got it wrong, that we were headed to West Virginia to do this. (laughs) And I looked up West Virginia and I was like, I don't think we can go. (laughs) And then then we were like, no, that's where we have to go. Right. Fetal heartbeat. Man, come on. One abortion clinic in West Virginia. Yeah. I will tell you on a, just a personal note, um, I never felt so acutely how, how far we still need to go as women until I got pregnant. Right. Because I have three children, mm-hmm. and I went from being an autonomous adult to, well, what does your husband think about this? Yeah. And it was like, who cares? When you had a kid, <laughs> it's that my happened? body. Oh, yeah. I see about the having uh, kids. Because um, when, you're, when you're pregnant, all of the decisions about your health care become family decisions. Oh as man, those to doctors' visits your get weird. decision. Yeah, I mean it's it's ridiculous. Like I, um, I had a C-section with my first child. With my second baby, I did not want another C-section unless it was 
required. And it's very common practice that once you've had one, you have to have more. Um, And I would interview doctors and say, well, what is your policy on this? And the first thing out of their mouth would be like, well, we want to make sure that the whole family is on board because there's (laughs) risk. And I'm like, okay, but this is my body, you know? And they were like, but it's his child. Yeah, but like, like, no, 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 it's not, not until it's born. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like if we go to, if we go to a car place, right. And Danielle and I are together. I have social anxiety. I don't like talking to people in situations that I'm not familiar with. And I don't know fucking anything about cars. So they can say whatever they want. But you have a penis. But I have a penis and it's imbued with knowledge about (laughs) cars that make people pay attention to me. Um, I wish that it spoke to me. Um, But like, so, but if I'm there and Danielle is there with her car, they'll talk to me instead of her. Yeah. When we were go to doctor's visits to talk about things like, do you want to have a VBAC or do you like, right? Mm-hmm. They would ask me, what do you think about this? And mm-hmm. I was like, please don't. I'm, I just, I'm not going to, I stopped coming to some yeah. of the interview sessions where we were talking to doctors because they would want my say in what's going on. And it was so foreign to them that I would just be like, you, why, why are you talking to me? One of the questions I asked was, um, I was very concerned about being unconscious because in my first delivery, they had had to sedate me at one point and I was not conscious. Um, and I said, I would like to write down all of my wishes ahead of time. <laughs> and they said, well, you don't need to because if you can't answer the questions, we're going to ask him. And I was like, no, no, no. I want to tell you my wishes ahead of time. They were like, no. I mean, you can, Impossible. but we will not look at that if he's there. Even the wow. way women give birth on their backs. Oh yeah, is Legs to be air, tied down more comfortable for the male doctor, mm-hmm. so he doesn't have to stoop mm-hmm. down to that. It's like the Taken system. Away. Our next play is called Universal Childcare because obviously oh, a huge part of the problem of like we're talking about the policymakers are all one kind of people. Yep. How do we get women into positions of power? They have to be able to go back to work. Mm-hmm. Why can't they go back to work? Because there's no subsidized childcare. Mm-hmm. In the, the states is the obviously the at the bottom of the list. There's yeah. no policy. Zero yeah, policy. We're, we're, Whereas we're, most we're of right there with but we're Swaziland that, and uh, we are yeah. not that far behind. Shockingly, in Canada, our policy is atrocious and it's super expensive to put your kid in daycare. So obviously, mm-hmm. a lot of women. And also, why is the expectation that it's the woman's job to parent? Why mm-hmm. can't it be fifty fifty? Or why you know. Those are societal, cultural expectations and projections. But, you know, to look at the way in which motherhood plays a role in this whole system of keeping us down is is our current endeavor. And that's <laughs> more in the film than it was in the play. Because, mm-hmm. again, we have, Patricia is a mother. Mm-hmm. And because we got more of the mother's perspective, it's in, it's in there. It's in there. But to return to the hope... I'd say the fact that we're having this conversation on this movie podcast <laughs> yeah. is yeah. a reflection of of the direction I hope we're going, where it's like, what's actually important? The movie or what it's saying and what the makers believe in? And like, this is a reflection of of you both being aware of where, we, where we're all at on this planet and like what, how urgent... Mm. What or what is urgent. Mm -hmm. And so that's really hopeful to me. 
So thanks. So we're like I said, we're coming up on the end of the time, um, and you know one of the questions that we ask all of the filmmakers that come by because we know how hard it is to make movies is we ask them uh, about um, if there's one moment that stands out to them in their career or their experience making that movie. Um, that they can use to feel appreciative of the opportunity that they get to make movies later on or, or that will buoy them sort of in low moments. And I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm sort of curious as, you know, what as performers and people who are so obviously philosophically engaged with the material that you're working with, do, what, like what keeps you going? What's one moment that keeps you going and, and, and pushing forward? I think that, the, that this kind of process is possible. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people believe it has to be really hierarchical and really uh, top down. You know, like the fact, the way that Nora described this process, that we were listened to the entire time, that it was collaborative. Of course, Patricia is very much the director, and I, and I believe that you need that one, one uh, stamp, you know, mm-hmm. like that one vision that's leading the way. But that, that you don't, you know, existing models... If they're not working, you just invent another one. Who cares what the status quo is? Like, who cares? This is how we did it before. And that's, that's how we make plays. And we don't mm. base our next play off of the one we just did. In fact, we try to do something that's challenging to it, and that's totally different. And we learn from the process, the previous production. And so moving on in the film world, it's like, wow, it's such a cool idea to be like, we can the process, we can make whatever we're going to make exactly how the hell we want to. Mm. We don't have to base it on an existing model that doesn't work for us. Why doesn't it work for us? Probably because it was built by a dead white guy, which neither of us are. Good, good on both <laughs> counts for you. <laughs> um, for me, I think a lot of the reason that I, the, the buoy moments are uh, audience yeah. related. Um, Particularly with the play, we've had conversations with people that have been so affected and so moved by the thing that we made dancing around in a basement somewhere when we couldn't afford to rent a studio that we believed in enough and that the fact that it made them dump their shitty boyfriend who was abusing them or call their mom and tell them that they or drive the woman today was like, I left the movie. I drove three hours and I spent the day with my mother. Cause I realized our relationship was broken. And, and those things, you know, they sound like big, you know, fairy tales and isn't that what everyone wants to hear, but they are the things that make you go, well, let's do another thing because that's why we're doing it is to connect with people. It's not for me to feel good about myself. It's for other people to, connect i think those are great answers um are you on the social medias yes we're on instagram at mouthpiece movie and twitter at qu collective and facebook at quote unquote collective all right so uh we're gonna push our listeners to the movie and then uh folks once you see it pass some good words towards them give us a shout yeah or if you hated it (laughs) (laughs) all right thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today we really appreciate it thank you all right and we're back in the projection booth uh they've gone down to do an intro to their movies which is showing by the way in two screens 
uh, sold out theaters. 270 people are here to see this movie. And in the after uh, it's done, we're going to get a chance to go another round of Q&A with them as they talk to the audience about the movie. And I'm really looking forward to that because Winchester is such a special film community. I feel like they're going to connect with this movie. Oh, I definitely think they are. And, and the film club here are so great. When when we go to other Q&As at other venues um, and your average audience member gets up and asks a question, it's kind of like Russian roulette as to whether it's going to be <laughs> something that you're like, yeah, I would love to hear the answer to that. Or is it going to be like, sit down, you're embarrassing me um, and yourself. But, uh, but, but this group, Andy has them so dialed in to good films and so comfortable having meaningful conversations about good film um, that they usually come up with some great questions for guests. So I'm looking forward to the Q&A. You know, it's funny that you were talking about that because I was um, talking with Gary uh, from the Say F It podcast who also did an interview with them uh, up here in the projection booth. Yeah, we were having some good times. Uh, yeah, we were having I. some good conversations. <laughs> um, but, you know, we were talking about how sort of you have to learn an appreciation for different types of films and that you you aren't just like, oh, I'm going to watch this, you know, black and white foreign film with a bunch of subtitles like somebody has to coach you into that and talk you through what's interesting or cool about it. And I think that that's a skill and appreciation that Andy and this community has worked very hard to foster. But I find that it relates directly to our conversation with Amy and Nora, because seeing the world from a different perspective that is not kind of like this culturally ingrained, like white male uh, cis dude yeah, if perspective. You, if you are not a woman, but you are seeing a film through the female gaze for the first time, it would be, I would, I'm just guessing here, um, similar to watching your first subtitled film or something like that, something where you don't have a lot of experience. Um, I Number one, I think that's why there's a tendency among people you know, on sort of film Twitter to assume that movies that are from a female gaze are not going to land well with audiences before they've even seen them. And um, also I think it it uh, reminds me a little bit of our conversation on Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures about um, introducing kids to black and white films. Um, but, you know, I have to say, when you and I first started watching independent films, um, it took me a while to to really develop the appreciation for them that I have now. Cause I remember in the beginning being like, nobody gets blown up and there's no <laughs> romantic interest here. Why am I watching this? Um, so I don't think that that's a problem that's unique. Um, I think that probably the overwhelming majority of people are, are probably have limited exposure to independent film because not everybody has an Alamo that will show them. Sure. And I, like, it's such a crucial thing. I mean, I'm, I'm always reminded of the Roger Ebert quote, which is that, um, you know, movies are empathy machines. And I think that what movies do is give us the illusion of a shared experience. And to have artists who are so willing to share that experience out there into the world. I mean, that was my curiosity with the question of who is their intended audience. You know, sometimes people make that soul-bearing art for the people that are like them who haven't found the words to share what it is that they're feeling. Sure. Um, Preaching to the choir, so to speak. 
Right. Or, or just helping to find ways to express these shared experiences so that people understand that they are not alone. And I think that's important. Yep. Um, like, I think it would have been a totally valid answer for them to say, not for you, dude. Right. Um, you, you know what I mean? Like, I think right. that's fine. We made this for every other frustrated feminist. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I, I do think it's important for people to be willing to share those personal experiences out there so that people who are not them, who don't necessarily immediately identify them, can start to find the nuggets of shared experiences that they do have with, with guilt and broken relationships and um, you know, not, not being treated the ways that you want to be treated and, and start recognizing that there is a whole other experience out there in the world that's not theirs. Yeah, I, mean, I really connected with... Um when Amy was talking about the very beginning of the process and how they started out to write a play about feminism and then during the course of writing it realized that a lot of their assumptions were incorrect mm-hmm. and and it really fundamentally changed you know what they actually made in terms of the play that then became the movie um i think that there's sort of an assumption right now in our current social climate that people are very entrenched in what they think and that they're not going to be open to changing their mind. And to some extent that's true, but sometimes you can have an epiphany of your own that that may change how you think about something um, through a film. You know, you and I were watching um, Alice earlier today mm-hmm. and uh, I found myself really questioning a very entrenched belief that I had had Um, as it relates to feminism and sex workers. And nobody said, hey, we're going to challenge what you think now. Mm -hmm. You know, it was was like, let's watch this interesting movie. And then I was sort of having that conversation all alone in my head, which really I think parallels mouthpiece because that's a a lot of what that film is about is this, the duality of of Cassandra's character. Mm. I, you know, we, a long time ago, uh, well, not that long ago, uh, earlier this year, had an interview with um, Issa Mazay, who wrote uh, a movie called Cam, uh, which is about a, a, a cam girl, a sex worker, right? Yep. And like talking, you know, that interview to me was particularly interesting because, um, you know, like um, like they were talking about during this conversation, you know, you know, shooting from the female gaze and constructing shots from the female gaze and being open to that is something that um, Issa shared from her experience on the set of Cam, you know, which where there is, uh, there's skin bearing, there's nudity, and how are you shooting it? And even they found themselves as they were working as a team to construct these shots going, oh no, wait, why are we doing this thing? We shouldn't be doing this thing. This is, this is not right. This is because a bunch of dudes set up this common practice and we've just sort of internalized it as the way that that should be. And, you know, like going through those experiences and challenging yourselves and being open to recognizing that, you know, even if you are philosophically aligned with something that, you know, you do need that continued experience. You do need to put yourself out there. You do need to share these things. I mean, that at least like that was my experience with, you know, like you were talking about, um, you know, talking to doctors about how birth would work. I was, I was shocked, shocked, shocked at how many uh, doctors wanted to know what I thought about it. And like, on the one hand, I was like, yeah, I do have an opinion about these things. Uh, like I'm not pretending that I didn't have an opinion, but I was shocked that like, they would stop, like they would stop you talking 
to ask what I thought about that. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, it, it's, it's interesting because when you're talking about reproductive rights specifically, but I think it does apply in other situations too, there can be a separation between what you think is right and what you think should be legal. Um, you know, I may think that abortion is wrong, but still want other people to be able to make that decision for themselves. And, um, and I don't, I'm just saying that's possible. And when you are pregnant, that, that really crashes almost violently home because I can think that you are the father of my child. You should have input and I want you to feel, um, included at the exact same time that I'm like, okay, but legally this is not right. This is my body. These are my choices. And you're talking about, um, you know, things that directly impact me physically. No one should get to make that decision except for me. Um, and, and you can simultaneously hold both of those beliefs and, and they can be at conflict. And I think that's the cool part about mouthpiece is that, you know, they share a lot of those experiences. And so, you know, go watch Mouthpiece and, mm-hmm. you know, experience something that uh, somebody else did that's not like something you have experienced. Or, or also can translate, hopefully, can translate belief to action. Because I think, uh, and this is just a theory that I have, that one of the reasons that we don't see more progress on reproductive rights is because when women are experiencing those challenges directly, they're also dealing with the stress of a pregnancy and an infant and a toddler, and they don't necessarily have the bandwidth to be participating in marches. And and I'm not saying none of them do, but certainly some of them, you know, there's postpartum depression and there's financial constraints and they're trying to balance motherhood and a career and there's just so much else going on. And then once they get through that and out the other side... Well, then I'm not having any more children, so I don't care about it with the same degree of intensity that I did when it was happening to me. But then when you see it on the screen, you're reminded of the intensity of those emotions, and it maybe motivates you to turn those beliefs into action. So I think that's another way that movies are not just empathy machines, but also sort of help you to know yourself better. As in addition to understanding others. I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to end this episode. <laughs> um, so big, you know, really though, genuinely, um, uh, very much thanks to Amy Nosbach and, and uh, Nora Sadova for taking the time to come and chat with us. Uh, thanks as always to Andy Gyerson and the Alamo Draft House and the Naranjas family not only for putting on last weekend and not only for creating a wonderful space for a film community to grow and thrive and for bringing interesting titles like mouthpiece uh, out here, but for letting us dorks come out and talk to the guests and get a chance to interact with the people who are making the movies um, that we love to watch. Uh, So thank you all uh, for your time. Uh, Let's see. Uh, You can find me at WBDAS on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. You can also find me uh, and the, uh, I guess now dubbed Extraordinary Dork uh, (laughs) on Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventure uh, as we work together to expand our 10-year-old daughter's uh, cinematic horizons. You know, we just started a project that I'm really proud of um hopefully we're about four or five episodes into it but uh we're taking a look back at the universal horror uh, monster movies uh we started with james wales frankenstein 
And if that interests you, I say jump into the episode roster there and listen forward to what you have. Because to be honest, uh, I am probably I'm the most proud of that, of anything that I have done. Just Claire being so smart and getting the movie and the conversation that we have in the philosophical places we go it's magical. Danielle, do you want to share your social medias or anything like that? Are you out there? Yeah, I don't really have any like public social medias, uh, but I did just want to say uh, really quickly, thank you for the um, warm welcome that the Winchester Film Club has extended to us personally, because every time we come out here, there's people waiting to hug us and (laughs) ask how the girls are and, you know, ask us what movies we're going to see and can we sit next to each other and Um, It's a little bit like, uh, you know, coming home and that warm welcome is not something that that you find very many places. And I I really appreciate it. I agree. Uh, And let's see. So you can find the rest of the dorks, uh, Brad Gullickson at Mouth Dork on all social medias, Lisa Gullickson at Sidewalk Siren, um, Brian Young at The Turtle Dork. And Darren Smith at the Disco Dork on all social medias. And as I said, Brad and Lisa have some great content coming out of Fantastic Fest. So stay tuned for all of that coverage. And until next time. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams 